You're listening to Future Ready through M&A. I'm your host, Scott Slater. Today on our show, we're going to talk about Fidelity's Insights on Sources of Capital and Independence report. There are some really interesting takeaways in there, and we're going to explore them. Plus, we chat with Mark Hurley, co-founder of Fiduciary Network, about what he's learned and how he sees things changing. I'm excited today to talk about our latest Fidelity Wealth Management M&A series report, which we've entitled Insights on Sources of Capital and Independence. This is the fourth in our series, and it began as an output from our M&A Leaders Forum initiatives that we began three years ago. That was an attempt to bring together a number of industry leaders and influencers who are actually doing a lot of the M&A in this industry, including not only strategic acquirers and very large RIA acquirers and independent broker-dealers and family offices, but also several of the investment bankers who really understand this space and specialize in our industry. And from that, we really came away with two conclusions. One, there needed to be more transparency on the transactions that were actually happening. And we began to do what we now issue our monthly reports, listing all those transactions above $100 million in assets under management in the RIA space and also within the independent broker-dealer space, some of the larger deals. Ultimately, though, that led us to start to ask questions about some of the key trends going on in this space, and those which led to one of the challenges being very prepared and well-capitalized buyers who have teams uh, prepared to do acquisitions and due diligence and understand the process and what it takes. And one of the things they stress to us is, on the other side, the people who are the potential sellers don't really understand this space at all. They don't know what they want necessarily as a group. They don't understand how the process works. Sometimes they're a little intimidated by it. Sometimes they're avoiding it. So one of the things that we sought to do then is bring more education and insight to the broader industry. We did our first report describing the the phenomenon of strategic acquirers and how they are different from each other and what they're trying to do. The second report looked at the next larger group of acquisition leaders, which are large RAA acquirers, which I would describe as firms that have at least a billion in assets under management that maybe did an initial opportunistic transaction. They are not serial acquirers like the strategic acquirers, but they are fully integrating them into their organizations, and they're building substantial and powerful businesses. Our third report last fall was on the independent broker-dealer space, and we sought to look at how those independent broker-dealers use M&A to drive their own strategy. And you see a more already more concentration in that marketplace than you do in the RIA channel today. And I think it's a good precursor to understand how that's influencing wealth management. Those first three reports were a lot about business models in the wealth management space. But many of the questions we were getting from members of the M&A Leaders Forum and our clients as we talked to them was, was around sources of capital. First of all, Where were those coming from? How was that influencing the space? How should they consider it as they think about their own future, whether as a seller or as a buyer? And we um, ultimately brought together a number of the individuals from the M&A Leaders Forum and spoke with them about their experiences with it, their understanding out of it, and their, their perspective. And like our other three reports, we then at Fidelity formed our own perspective, integrating the interviews that we received from those individuals to develop this point of view. Ultimately, I think the, the message that we want to stress here is, is in the title itself. There are a lot of sources of capital in this space, particularly private capital, and it is influencing and concentrating the marketplace, but it also affects uh, the whole idea of independence. And my point of view is, while independence has often been viewed as autonomy, and it's what really built this business over the long term, 
Independence is going through a redefinition. And I think the prepared advisor can really take advantage of this opportunity going forward if they understand how capital is influencing it, they understand what they want, and they understand the role that they want to play there and enter it with confidence and preparedness. And this report is intended to help our entire industry better understand where that's going. You can read the report for yourself at clearingcustody.fidelity.com, and we'll have a link in the show notes. Our guest for this episode of the show is Mark Hurley. Mark is one of the co-founders of Fiduciary Network and has been writing on the field for two decades. When we sat down to chat, the first thing I asked him about was how he's seen the field evolve over his career. Well, first, I just want to make it clear I'm not speaking today on behalf of Fiduciary Network. I'm only speaking on behalf of myself. The M&A market has changed substantially for a couple major reasons. First off, wealth management is made up of very small businesses. When Fiduciary Network was started, it was 2006, there were about 100 firms that had a billion dollars of assets. Today, there's 683. So the, the firms that are large today are substantially larger than a billion. Many are over five billion. And billion-dollar firms are no longer really large, but they are still relevant. As a consequence, the M&A deals you're seeing are getting substantially larger than you would have seen 10 or 11 years ago. So it's the people who built these businesses get to a certain point in their career where unless they do a transaction, they won't be able to do a transaction if they wait too long because at some point they, there's the shift in power within the organizations that they work with. So the demographics industry over the last 11 years have obviously gotten older. Today, the average age of a founder is north of 63. And this combination of larger firms and older founders means we're on the cusp, in my view, of a wave of much larger deals than you've seen in prior years. Well, it, and it's true. I, you know, it's interesting. We've seen this uh, this phenomenon discussed for years, but with each passing year, the average age gets one year older. Um, you know, we're seeing, Mark, a gravitation to uh, also to forming platforms. Uh, what do you think is driving this? Well, I think the, uh, the, like any market in business, you either do more for the client or you get paid less over time. This is the beauty of capitalism. As a consequence, in order to do more for the client, you have to have greater scale. And the industry itself is insanely fragmented. The way the smaller organizations achieve scale is they affiliate with a platform. And the original platforms everybody affiliated with were the custodians. They gave them their basic technology. Now they're having to affiliate with organizations that provide a a wider range of capabilities that allow the smaller practitioner to focus on a narrower set of things and effectively outsource the remainder. And so what you're seeing is, is this concentration in the industry. Nobody's going out of business, but the larger firms are getting much, much larger. And then the smaller firms are having to affiliate with larger organizations, such as platforms. Otherwise, they just become very uneconomic very quickly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We, when you look at some of the, the Cerulli data from just about a year ago, I think it's something like uh, 77% of the firms have less than $100 million in assets, but they only represent about 10%. Uh, of all the assets in the RIA space, where on the other end of the, the scale, above a half a billion, I think it's 6% of the firms, and it's about 70% of the, the assets under management. It seems kind of like the 80-20 rule, a little bit on steroids uh, for this industry in terms of the concentration. Yeah, yeah, but I think if you actually take the RIA business as opposed to independent broker-dealers, you know, because the very large independent fee-only wealth management firms, are the large ones are becoming much, much larger. And if you actually look at the flows, 
about 72% of the firms as of last year, if you excluded the market, were shrinking. That the new clients are coming increasingly to the larger firms because these organizations have become far more sophisticated at marketing. They also have the successors. They have the capacity to take the clients on. And so while the smaller firms aren't going out of business, they're not growing. And both the owners and the clients of these firms over time are going to age out. So in effect, then, the platforms that we're discussing, this is a lot more than just technology and operations uh, scalability. It really is about the capabilities around helping them grow and uh, helping them market, and uh, as well as something we're going to talk about in a minute, which is uh, the whole M&A space. Isn't that, isn't that the case? Well, I think it's even beyond that. Uh, wealth management firms are going to have to do more for their clients over time, or their fees will come down because the historical traditional value-added financial planning and investment management is increasingly being commoditized through a combination of technology and the uh, emergence of ETFs and index funds. It's Clients can invest their own money very, very efficiently. Now, to be sure, wealth management firms help clients handle this incredibly complicated relationship they have with their own money. So the need for a wealth management firms are not going down. It's actually going up. The question is what clients will pay for it. And what I think you're going to see over the next uh, seven to 10 years is that wealth management firms' core ser service offering is going to expand. A, a simple example of this, there's a great study out of the Stanford Longevity Center that shows for every three years that someone lives, their longevity goes up by four months. Well, as people live longer, the greatest threat to their wealth is not going to be intelligent investing of it. It's going to be how they consume it, in particular with regards to healthcare costs. So I think a large function of, of every wealth management firm within a decade is going to be helping their clients not just on the management of the money and the investment of the money and, and effectively creating additional capital through investing it, but also on the consumption function with a heavy emphasis on what will be the largest cost, which will be healthcare costs. But I think it's going to go even beyond that. I think wealth management firms are going to be less financial advisors and more advisors, and they're going to have a series of very high value-added, high fixed-cost low marginal cost type functions that they'll help clients with. But to be able to afford those functions, they have to be much larger, or the platform itself has to provide that capability to the individual advisor. That's a great example. I, I know that, that that actually fits very well with what we at Fidelity have been talking about, about the, uh, well, initially we called it the upending of the value stack, where more of it is around advice and less about about the investment side, but increasingly how that value stack is much more focused around higher order levels of advice uh, that you're that you're talking about so that's uh, that's helpful I would say if you think of this as I'll like think of it as three buckets there is the creating the, the wealth there is investing and managing the wealth and there's the consuming the wealth historically advisors have focused on the center bucket which is the managing and investing the wealth where the increase in value added is going to come over time is going to be on helping them create wealth and helping them more efficiently consume the wealth. And each of those have a, you know, depending on what types of clients they have, and, and I think you'll see rather than wealth management firms working sort of as, as generics, like a, like a general physician, a family practice physician, increasingly you're gonna see specialization. They're gonna be firms that are great with working with certain peoples in certain professions, certain people with certain problems and specific needs, and within that, these big organizations, there'll be confederations of groups that each have their own specialty. And then what they'll develop is some expertise, which is typically very high fixed cost, low marginal cost type expertise that help these clients 
that have these specific set of problems. And if you think about medicine, it used to be, you know, the, the, your doctor would actually take your blood pressure. Today, everything's specialized and all the lowest value-added functions are outsourced to lower-cost providers such as nurses and medical assistants. I think you see something similar here. There's going to be a much higher level of value-added provided by the wealth manager, but they're going to do it on a more efficient basis and they're going to do it by scaling up so they can offer this larger menu of core services that allow the client to solve their problems. Do you see any examples of that already happening today, particularly at that very highly specialized example that you were just describing? Oh, goodness, yes. Some of the fastest growing firms in the country are specialists. There's a firm that, for example, we're an investor in called Brown Janikowski has built a very large business working with attorneys in certain types of law firms. And they play a large role, not just in helping manage their money, but thinking about how they create their capital over time. There are other organizations, for example, we're an investor in a firm in Phoenix that has a expertise in the U.S.-Canada tax treaty in helping people who sell businesses in Canada take advantage of the U.S.-Canada tax treaty to avoid an enormous amount of taxes by immediately immigrating to the United States. And they handle everything from the green card to all the tax filings to managing the foreign tax credits that are created. But this is going to go from being kind of the unique one-off thing to becoming the standard. But there's also other specializations that's occurring. That, for example, if you look at Weatherby, that organization has built an enormous capability, an extraordinary capability in impact investing. So they've gone from simply helping people get a good return on their money to meet their financial goals to also helping them create a way of achieving goals that go beyond just returns, personal goals with regards to how they want their money spent and their personal set of values. And I think that all of these different functions, over time, you're either going to be able to provide this kind of service or it's going to be much harder for you to attract new clients. I'm not worried about existing clients shifting. There tends to be a breathtaking inertia to existing clients. But the challenge will be what will be your service offering and what will people pay for it for the marginal client. And keep in mind, clients do get older. And as they get older, they consume their capital. So if you're not adding new clients, your business quickly starts to look like a depleting oil well. And all we're debating is, is how fast that oil well will deplete. So, Mark, then, I know you've uh, sometimes expressed some, some uh, sentiment about the, the challenge for smaller firms to be able to uh, prevail and survive in this type of environment. But at the same time, what would be your, how do you see it for the smaller firm today, which has strong relationships, is doing a good job, and very, executing it uh, very well? What does that mean two, three, four years from now, given what you're seeing around concentration and platforms and all we've just discussed? Well, first off, there's a myth that I thought any firm's ever going to go out of business. These businesses are great. The question is, is whether the underlying business ultimately has any economic value as a business. And today, what we have is this industry that's made up of about two to 100, 400 firms that have the potential to have substantial enterprise value as businesses. But it doesn't mean the other you know, 19,000 or so firms are going to go out of business, but they increasingly will look like jobs. If you want a, a, an analogy to compare it to is bookkeepers today exist even though there's a very small number of national accounting firms. And the bookkeeping jobs are great. They're just not businesses that have great value as businesses. So I think, I think that when you think of this, everybody has to figure out what's right for them as opposed to some sort of broad question of whether you'll be able to survive. All these businesses will survive. The question will be is, what does the person working in the business hope to accomplish professionally? Uh, many are very content to have lifestyle practices. 
that they're able to do a good job for a set of clients and they age out with their clients and then when they're done, someone else might take over the, the business. It's sort of analogous to a barbershop. When you're done, you, you, you sell the chairs and the scissors, but it's really not a business that you're selling to somebody else. On the other hand, we're starting to see the emergence of some much larger firms. And these larger firms are doing mergers and acquisitions mostly to get more successors because clients are plentiful. There's no shortage of clients to be gotten. The challenge is now building a large enough base of successors so you can build a larger enterprise. So it's about talent then for a lot of these M&A strategies. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, we, I would say about, in the, in, again, we're getting into the large firm category. There's sort of three types of deals that are being done. In the large firm category, there's two types. And in the small firm category, what you're mostly seeing there are there are a series of platforms that are trying to buy up small firms. And then they typically are private equity sponsored platforms. And the goal is to then flip that platform after three or four years to someone else, some other PE firm. And what they're picking up over time are firms with older clients with an older management. And so the question isn't whether they're running off, it's how fast they're running off. But the goal is to say, well, look how big our number is, but they, they ignore the sophistication of the market in trying to figure out what that value is. The good news for these people who are investing in these platforms is that the clients are so stable and the cash flows are so stable that it's a very slow decline. So as a consequence, with our sophisticated financial structures, the investors can get a return for their investors. But they're not really building sustainable enterprises. On the other hand, what you have uh, in a very small number of organizations are starting to build large-scale, sophisticated, sustainable enterprises where they've broadened their ownership, they've broadened their capability. Many of these firms have 20, 30 partners already. They're getting multiple locations. They're doing a combination of acquisitions and mergers. And they're building enterprises that at some point will be the, the dominant competitors in the industry. So you said sustainable a couple times there. What are the you mentioned a few things, but what are the key characteristics of that sustainable enterprise that you see going forward? There are multiple characteristics. The first thing is is this organization will have more scale than it has today, and to do that, they'll specialize by function. I can think back to 15 years ago when it was sort of a radical idea that you had separate people investing money as opposed to the people working with clients. Today, any firm with any scale has already made that a separate function. But you're going to see increasing professionalization by function. You're actually starting to see in some of the larger firms professional management, people who aren't advisors that actually run the business full-time. And before they would have been chief operating officers, now you're seeing the emergence of chief executive officers doing this full-time. But on top of that, you're seeing broadly held ownership. These businesses are really just an agreement of people to work together. So unless you have a mechanism for reallocating the economics over time, at some point the business becomes unsustainable. However, reallocating economics also means reallocating, for lack of a better term, power or governance within the organization. And one of the great obstacles to this is these people who founded the business, these you know entrepreneurs, it's very, very hard to have this notion of going from being king to being you know, the, the Duke of Monaco. And a very complicated, difficult process to get there. But we're seeing a series of firms that are accomplishing this. There's an attorney named Chris Frieden. He works for an Atlanta-based law firm who has what I call Frieden's thesis. And Frieden's, Frieden has argued that when you look at mergers and acquisition transactions, you have to be lucky in the sense of getting one or two transformational deals done in the next few years if you're going to be a competitor in that market. 
And the reason is, is that when firms are actually taken to market, they're not widely marketed. There's a myth that bankers take them out and show them to 30 or 40 parties. They rarely do. They typically show it to two or three parties. And the reason is, is that for a transaction to happen, the successors at the selling firm have to buy into it. Otherwise, there's nothing to sell. So they're trying to find someone they know that has access to capital, but also has the type of culture and opportunity for the successors that will get them to sign on for it. And as a consequence, there's this shrinking pool of attractive acquirers. So one of the key things of the, the, the winners, for lack of a better term, the sustainable firms, is they're going to get fortunate enough to have done one or two material deals in the next few years so that as more deals become onto the market, they'll actually be considered. And the firms that don't, and don't have a track record where they show they can actually get a deal done, that they can access capital, and they can successfully integrate a deal, won't even be considered. Mark, one of the uh, things we at Fidelity did several years ago, and you were an instrumental part of helping us with this, was forming the M&A Leaders Forum because we did see a lot of the uh, increasing activity in the area. And from that, we first of all tried to provide transparency around a lot more of the transactions that were actually happening, the individual transactions happening. And then we also sought to, you know, at the response of many of the people we met with at, in the M&A Leaders Forum, and you've been at all of our meetings, to try to do a better job of narrowing the, the gap of education between buyer and seller. And one of those reports we just issued, you were a part of helping us with as one of the interviewees, and that's been this one on, um, on uh, sources of capital and independence and looking at insight to that. Why don't you give us a few comments um, as you've uh, you know, seen in the report and some of the highlights that we talked about there. I mean, one of the themes that we stressed as we, uh, we developed it at Fidelity was that this actually broadens the opportunity for uh, the independent advisor uh, going forward for way more options today if they're prepared and educated and uh, really understand that. Um, how do you see that? Well, one, I thought your report was extremely sophisticated because it's the first study of the industry from the perspective of the capital providers that recognizes the market segmentation that's occurring. Ironically, there are many, many firms out in the market trying to do transactions, but they don't actually compete with each other. What they each have is their own model, and that model is right for certain firms, and it's not for other firms. And it's the segmentation and understanding the segmentation and understanding if you're a wealth manager where you fit within that segmentation as to figure out what's the best option for you. They also don't want to really want to sell the business. They just need capital to solve a problem. That's very different than, say, someone who would like to sell the business outright. And there's other models, some of the platform models, where parties will merge into a platform but effectively keep control of most of their own economics but take advantage of the platform. If you study the Fidelity Report, what's very thoughtful about it is it gives you a sense of how the market is self-selecting into different segments and then which of the parties fit each of those segments. And if someone tries to go into a segment that's not really appropriate to them, they get a very bad outcome. So a large part of this is if you're a wealth management firm, it's getting a real sense of what are you trying to accomplish. Are you trying to sell your firm outright to, say, an aggregator? And quite candidly, you, you don't have the successors to continue to build, so why not just try to get some value from that? Or perhaps you would like to remain independent and do an acquisition or buy out some partners that are retiring. Or perhaps you, you, you have a firm that you'd like to keep it independent, but you don't have the longevity the runway in order to do your own transaction internally, so perhaps you want to merge it into another firm that has access to capital that is independent. There's still others, particularly some of the smaller firms, they're finding that the best way to monetize is to join one of these PE-backed platforms 
and fold their business into that. And as I mentioned, there's three types of deals that are occurring. In the very large segment deals, there are what I would call large-scale recruitment functions where large firms are effectively merging or acquiring other firms, but what's driving their decision is not necessarily the clients that are coming over, but rather the talent they're getting out of it. The second type of large firm deal are what I call a steroid shot, where there are oftentimes where a firm has dramatically expanded its staff and it's an opportunity to buy a large firm that doesn't have a deep bench but has lots of clients and you can instantly scale up. And those are becoming far less common than the first. I would say at least 70 to 75% of the former. And then the last type of deals are very small firms that may have some enterprise value and the way they can capture that value is to strap themselves onto one of these uh, various roll-ups PE back roll-ups, and then within those organizations, over time, they tend to consolidate their acquisitions into a smaller number of individual sub-platforms within the organization. But again, your study is very sophisticated because it's the first one that helps people sort of think through where do I fit in this universe, and therefore, where is the right place for me to think about getting capital or potentially selling my business? Well, thank you for that. Uh, Mark, one of the things I, I, several of the individuals we interviewed for this report, I heard the phrase several times around determining our alignment of interests between buyer and seller. And uh, we really tried to dig into that a little more. And that seems to me central to what you're talking about right now, isn't it? Yeah, I like to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's the fundamental question one has to answer. And for a wealth management firm, CEO or founder, most of them don't really know. There's, it's an exploratory process. We've worked on transactions, for example, where they originally thought they'd like to do an internal transition, a standalone deal. And as they spent time and studied it and thought about it and worked through the issues, they realized they just either lacked the energy or the time to do it. But the same token, they didn't have any interest in selling their business to a roll-up. So a better alternative for them would be to merge slash sell their business to another firm that already has accomplished an internal transition and has access to capital. And typically in those cases, the younger people in the organization become shareholders in the new combined organization. You wind up in an organization with 30 or 40 shareholders, and then the founders are given liquidity through the transaction also. But from the perspective of the clients, it's, it's very good news. It's not, you're, not, you're not being sold to a bank. You're not being sold to some organization that's sort of unclear where it's going to wind up. Rather, you're, the, the same people are there. The same brand name is there. You're just part of a large organization with greater capability, and the, the, the successor professionals you've been working with are now shareholders in the larger organization. From the report as well, we talked a little bit about different types of, well, first of all, capital. We spent most of our time talking about equity capital, but could you say a little bit about how you see debt? Some of the, the individuals we spoke to see limitations to debt for the larger firms to be able to actually execute on that? And how does that fit into the equation? And when does equity become more critical? The challenge with using debt to do acquisitions is that you have to repay debt with after-tax dollars. So as a consequence, if you buy a firm and you pay them, say, $10 million to buy the company, you have to have approximately $20 million of pre-tax earnings to repay the debt associated, not counting the interest. Now, if you look at where current market pricing is, for example, if you were going to buy a firm that had say round numbers, $10 million of revenue, and on a standalone basis, say it made $3 million, but because of the various cost savings, you could make five on it. One, to buy that business, the, the typical market pricing today would be somewhere between 20 to $25 million of closing, 
and another 10 to $12 million in two to three years uh, tied to client retention. And that doesn't count any growth payments, which are separate from that. So let's assume you paid $30 million or $32 million to buy it. You're only making $5 million marginally, but that's pre-tax dollars. So you'd have to have $64 million of pre-tax dollars just to pay back the debt, not counting the interest, or you'd have to have over 12 years of pre-tax profitability to make it work. It just mathematically is impossible. So what we're seeing is some firms will borrow money and get themselves very, very leveraged and try to do an acquisition or two, and then suddenly find themselves in this very difficult position where they're trying to figure out how to deleverage themselves, and they realize that they're being limited in the deals they can do. Lastly, one of the challenges in doing M&A is that it's the exact same level of brain damage and in some ways a higher level of risk to acquire a small firm as it is a large firm, but it really doesn't materially change your outcomes. A firm that has $10 million of revenue and goes and buys someone, say, has $2 million of revenue, they haven't really moved the needle, but they've had to borrow a substantial amount of money to do that and dedicate a chunk of their profits to achieve it. A transaction, say, where they bought another $10 million firm, that's transformational. And so one of the more difficult choices people have to make if they're trying to do acquisitions is decide, again, what do they want to be when they grow up? The last point I'd make is we have found there's an inverse relationship between the size of a firm and the sanity of the seller. It's actually harder to get a deal done with a smaller firm than it is a larger firm. So there are many parties out there trying to buy smaller firms who are not backed, say, by PE guys, and they're borrowing some money and getting one-off deal done here and there. But they're having a very hard time achieving any scale or really moving the needle. I think the winners are ultimately those that are going to do large transactions, and to do that, they're going to need to get capital to achieve it. Well, that's, that's a great response, so thank you for characterizing that for our audience. You know, one of the things in this report we talked about is, first of all, the landscape, and we've touched on that, but we also talked about best practices, and we identified four in there, and I'd love for you to comment on them. One we already talked about, which is, you know, understanding which strategy and partners best align with a, a, a seller's interests. Uh, in other words, let's understand what those options are. A second is to tap outside expertise, such as a banker or a transition consultant, to broadly expand options, since this is, for most advisors, it's probably the first time they've done something like this. Third is to then, once you've received that capital, to plan for a successful transition and ongoing growth, that you actually have to execute on what that is for receiving the capital. And then fourth, be open to... Um, the guidance you're going to receive from from experts who are on your board or who are overseeing your your business, in other words, governance. Do you want to comment on a few of those things as we uh, as we begin to close? Yeah, I think you have in the reverse order. The hardest thing about taking capital from any party is that the business has fundamentally changed. The management team is no longer the sole decision makers. Nobody is going to give material amounts of capital to anybody without having a material say in what happens in governance. Now, these are shades of gray. Uh, our organization is the most passive. We don't even serve on the board. We just have some vetoes. But those vetoes, because we're putting many millions of dollars in, are, are, are substantial. Other cases, they actually have voting control. In other cases, they have a right to liquidity, which means you they may give you the money, and you'll have the money for three or four years. But at some point, you know, typically four or five years down the road, they can say, you have to get us liquidity, even if you have to sell the business. So when, I, when you think of taking capital, it's a bit more complex. I think you first have to decide what governance you're willing to give up. And one of the great myths in this industry is you are, quote, autonomous, as opposed to voting control. Autonomy is irrelevant. It's voting control that matters. 
If you've given up voting control, you have given up control of the company, even if you're quote-unquote autonomous. I think the second issue is the liquidity rights associated with capital. It's fine to take capital and say, okay, you know, I'll worry about that five years from now, but let me tell you, you blink and five years later, if they can force liquidity, you may have to sell your business at a time that really doesn't make sense for you. And those two things, I think, drive an immense amount of the behavior when it comes to this mental Rubicon that potential acquirers have to get over. Because once they've taken capital, their business is fundamentally altered and it's not going to change back. You now have somebody who owns a piece of the business, has, a, has some sort of say in the business. And that's why when you get to the point that you're taking capital, one should, it should be to do an acquisition that materially transforms the company. It's not the small marginal deal. So in other words, it really does come back to what we, we touched on, which is understand what are you trying to move toward? Where, where are you trying to build your business? And what outcome are you looking for? Not just a year from now, but you're, you're, you're on a, all of a sudden you're on a trajectory, really, when, once you've taken on that capital. Isn't that right? Yeah, and it's very hard for founders to accept this because it's like thinking about Walmart coming to your neighborhood when you've been running a small store for years and everything has been great. A real challenge for a lot of people emotionally who are founders of this business, they remember back in the 90s where it was very collegial and uh, their clients were so plentiful and fees were so high that it was very easy to make money. But the same token, most people doing it weren't there to make money. It's now converting into a business. And for a lot of people, that's very sad. They miss the, uh, the, the, the those days. You know, I, I too miss the 90s. I think there has to be a, a pragmatism to be successful, which is, you can see not where you are today, but where you need to be 10 years from now, and then make some very difficult choices and bets and head in that direction. And hopefully you can execute well enough to be successful. And if you do, you've got an incredible opportunity. Well, that's interesting. So as we, uh, as we close here then, Mark, what would be your advice to the independent advisor who is frankly doing well and maybe even growing? They're profitable today. They like what they're doing. And um, frankly, autonomy is attractive to them. What's, the, what's your advice to them, then, as they uh, think through the future? I have two things. You need to get bigger, and you get more specialized. And the organizations that are able to carve out a niche where they're the preeminent firm helping clients with a very difficult, complicated problem, of which there, there are enough clients to make it a large enough business, and that are able to scale that up are going to have great businesses that are worth tremendous amounts of money, and more importantly, they're going to make an immense difference in their clients' lives. But anybody who doesn't want to get larger or more specialized should assume that they are going to be quickly become a lifestyle practice. So they'll make a, have a nice job, make a nice living, but ultimately what they'll own won't be very valuable. Great. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for the time you've given us and uh, for your, your wonderful insights from your, your long experience and also for your contributions to this important report on sources of capital and independence. And Hopefully it will help many of our audience, uh, many of those in our audience, to have a better understanding of what some of the challenges are, how capital is influencing our industry and M&A more specifically, and uh, where the future is going. Thank you very much. Mark Hurley is co-founder of Fiduciary Network. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Future Ready through M&A. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Slater, and we're Future Ready. Future Ready Through M&A is a production of Fidelity's Clearing and Custody Solutions with help from Collective Next. Got a question or a comment? Get in touch at fidelitymainsights at fmr.com. 
For more on the work on the number of firms in the space developed by Fidelity Investments, analysis was completed in 2017, identifying all $1 billion plus firms in the registered advisory space. This information is current as of the recording of this interview, June 9, 2018. For more information on the Cerulli report, you can look at pages 55 through 70 and 79 through 84 of the Advisor Metrics 2017, The Next Generation of Planning, published in December 2017. Data is 2016 data. Laura Karstensen of the Stanford Longevity Center presented the idea that every three years someone lives, their longevity goes up by four months at the International Center for Wealth Advisory Excellence Conference in Cortona, Italy, May 26, 2018. For more on Atlanta lawyer Chris Frieden, you can read The Calmest Lawyer in the Room, published in Financial Advisor in August 2017. Any reproduction, transcription, or rebroadcast of this content are forbidden without explicit permission. The content provided herein is general in nature and is for informational purposes only. This information is not individualized and is not intended to serve as the primary or sole basis for your decisions, as there may be other factors you should consider. Fidelity's Clearing and Custody Solutions does not provide financial or investment advice. You should conduct your own due diligence and analysis based on your specific needs. Unless otherwise disclosed to you, in providing this information, Fidelity is not undertaking to provide impartial investment advice or to give advice in a fiduciary capacity in connection with any investments or transactions described herein. Fiduciaries are solely responsible for exercising independent judgment in evaluating any transactions and are assumed to be capable of evaluating investment risks independently, both in general and with regard to particular transactions and investment strategies. Fidelity has a financial interest in any transaction that fiduciaries, and if applicable, their clients, may enter into if involving Fidelity's products or services. The third-party providers listed herein are neither affiliated with nor an agent of Fidelity and are not authorized to make representations on behalf of Fidelity. Their input herein does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information was provided by the third-party providers and is subject to change. The content provided and maintained by any third-party website is not owned or controlled by Fidelity. Fidelity takes no responsibility whatsoever, nor in any way endorses such content. There is no form of legal partnership, agency affiliation, or similar relationship among an investment professional, the third-party service providers, and Fidelity Investments. Nor is such a relationship created or implied by the information herein. Third-party trademarks and service marks are the property of their respective owners. All other trademarks and service marks are the property of FMR LLC or its affiliated companies. Fidelity Institutional Asset Management, FIAM, provides registered investment products via Fidelity Distributors Company, LLC, and institutional asset management services through FIAM, LLC, or Fidelity Institutional Asset Management Trust Company. Fidelity Clearing Custody Solutions Registered Trademark provides clearing, custody, and other brokerage services through National Financial Services, LLC, or Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, members NYSE SIPC, 200 Seaport Boulevard, Z2B1, Boston, Massachusetts, 02210, copyright 2018, FMR, LLC, all rights reserved. 848006.16.0